Mr. and great delight to introduce to you Randy Patton. Uh, Randy Patton is uh, uh, much to my uh, wonderful surprise, this brother who uh, was instrumental in uh, training me uh, from afar. By that I mean I, I went to a very large conference uh, with about 2,000 other people and heard Randy uh, teach. And uh, with the exception of the teaching of Wayne Mack, I, I'm not sure that I've, I've ever heard such clear instruction about how we can minister the word of God to people, to the lost and to, to one another. Uh, this brother has had such an impact on me, and I praise God that uh, in the mystery of his grace, somehow along the way uh, over the years, we've become good friends. And, uh, and if you missed Sunday school this morning, uh, on Tuesday it will be uh, online, and you need to hear it. Uh, I told you last week that, uh, you know, we're having our um, annual training conference down in, uh, down in Granbury, and while it's maxed out, we want you to be thinking about this, because this is an integral part of uh, our ministry at Calvary Bible Church. And so we're doing things to try to help inspire people to see that this is something we all counsel. It's what Randy talked about this morning. And, uh, but do we counsel with the Word of God? Do we give biblical counsel? And uh, we want our people to be actively engaged in that ministry. And so that means many of you, perhaps not all of you in a formal way, but many of you. Let me just tell you a little bit about uh, Randy. Uh, Randy was in pastoral ministry for 12 years. Uh, he's been married to his wife, Cindy, for, get this, 50 years uh, they have two adult children. He's the founder of Team Focus Ministry. Uh, for many years, he was the executive director of what would become ACBC, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. Back then it was called NANC, and he was a part of that, uh, a key, really important leader in, in that uh, early ministry. He is also one of the trustees of Cedarville University in Ohio, and uh, he's just an all-around good guy as well. But he's a, a wonderful, clear, clear ministry of the word. I, I think that if there's one thing that I wish I had that more of that Randy has, it's clarity, just clear uh, teaching, and, uh, and so, so helpful uh, to all of us as we hear. Uh, now, just one piece of housekeeping, housekeeping information. Uh, you were supposed to get one of these in your bulletin, and half of you did and the other half of you didn't. So if you could just raise your hand if you don't have one of these. Uh, Randy wanted you to have it so you can kind of follow along in his preaching. And, uh, and Randy, it is time, brother, would you come? Well, thank you. <clears throat> thank you, Pastor Dan, and uh, good morning, everybody. It's a great privilege for me to be here, and I uh, I'm humbled by that kind, gracious uh, introduction that he gave, and he said uh, some similar things at the first hour, and as I told the people then, I think God will forgive him for all those exaggerations, and, <laughs> and hopefully forgive me for enjoying them as much as I did uh, hearing them again. It's a great joy. I've, I've wanted to come and be here for a long, long time, and I've really enjoyed getting to know Dan, and <clears throat> I've had the privilege of speaking at the counseling training conference two times previously when it was in Granbury and had such a wonderful experience. We had a great conference 
this, last, this past weekend, and I would encourage you folks to attend it next year when we'll be back here on your property. And uh, the team that's together uh, conducting that just did a wonderful job. It was a great privilege for me to, to be there. And uh, since I'm uh, talking to Dan's congregation, let me just make a couple observations ab- about him. Uh, I've really enjoyed getting to know your pastor over the years and working with him, and I'm so pleased uh, now that he's an ACBC fellow and is helping do supervision work. And as I've got to know your pastor and uh, interacted with him at conferences, but also on lots of different phone calls and things, there's three things about him that have stood out to me. Uh, One is he loves God and the scriptures. The man genuinely hungers and thirsts for righteousness and uh, in a wonderfully refreshing way. Second, he is a learner. And though God has blessed his ministry with uh, significant church growth, and he pastors a church larger than I ever pastored, um, God, he has the kind of heart where he's still hungering and thirsting and wanting to grow and develop. And uh, a lot of men who've experienced the kind of successes he has in life and ministry are not the learner that your pastor is. The third thing that stands out is that he loves you folks. And uh, I talk to a lot of pastors, and I can't say that about a lot of pastors I talk to. But your pastor loves you and genuinely has your well-being at heart. And uh, he loves his family. That always comes through. But he loves his church family and uh, as an extension of his love for his immediate family. And you folks ought to be thankful for that. And I'd say to those of you that are new to this church... You've landed at a good place. And there are people all across uh, America that wish they had the opportunity to be a part of a body of believers like this one. So I would encourage you to rejoice in what God has given you and take advantage of it and be faithful uh, servants here. Well, as the notes indicate, I'm speaking to you on the subject of hope and help for parents. And before we get into that, could we pray and ask for God's help? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the joy and the privilege of being here, and as we come to your word, I would ask that you'd help me to speak in a way that's genuinely beneficial and helpful to these brothers and sisters. pray you'd help me to handle the scriptures accurately and to explain it in a way that's meaningful and helpful to each individual that's here. And I pray for each individual, regardless of their age and regardless of their duties in life right now that you would help them to pay attention to this passage and to consider how it might influence their thinking, the way they advise others, the way they conduct their own lives and deal with their own family, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. All right, our subject this morning is hope and help for parents or discipleship in the home. I would say that the greatest joys that you'll ever experience in life will probably involve your children or your grandchildren. And I'd also say the contrary is probably true, that the greatest heartache you'll ever express in life or experience in life is probably going to be related to your children or your grandchildren. And we would be wise, particularly as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, to pay attention to his word on the subject of parent-child relationships. Now, I realize that not all of you are uh, parents this morning, And so let me just say that as I'm speaking, I've prepared these notes with five distinct groups of people in mind. The number one would be parents. And if all of you are parents, I would say to you, like you say to your kids, sit up straight and listen. All right? 
because some things are coming that should be of help to you. Second, I'm also referring to those of you who are at the stage of life where I am, and that is the, the joy of being a grandparent and having the opportunity of influencing the next generation. And our culture's view of grandparenting is that, you know, we spoil them and send them home. That is not a biblical view. We can oftentimes be at a point in life where we have the time and resources to do things with them. And over the years, we've maybe learned that some things we emphasized when we were parents don't need to be emphasized quite the way right now. But grandparents are in a very strategic role in the lives of their grandchildren. Both my wife and I were significantly influenced by one of our grandparents. And we know grandparents can have a profound influence. And I trust that every grandparent here, or soon-to-be grandparent, will pay particular attention to what the Scripture teaches so that your influence points your children toward godliness, a life of godliness. My third group are those of you that work with children or youth workers. And God wants you to be an asset, to be a help to the parents in accomplishing their biblical goals. God doesn't intend you to be the savior of the children, saving them from their lousy parents. God expects you to be supporters of the parents, particularly as they're seeking to do things according to the scripture. So I hope that all of you that are working with children will listen carefully. Number four, I'm, I want to speak to those of you who are not parents, but hope by God's grace to be parents someday. And uh, I have talked to many people who have told me that they were raised in the kind of home where they say, I did not have a good childhood. I do not want to raise my children the way I was raised, but I don't know what to do. And if you hope to be a parent someday, sit up straight and listen, because you're going to get some answers to put in your parenting-to-be toolbox. And the fifth group I want to talk to are children. For all of you kids who think uh, mom and dad are messed up or are not hitting home runs all the time, why well, I hope you'll listen because maybe you're going to discover that some of what mom and dad are doing is exactly what God wants them to be doing. And if you understand the game plan, the long-term goal, maybe you'll find some peace and help and you'll be more appreciative for the kind of home that you're in. Now, my text for this morning is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. And so you might want to turn in your Bible there, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. And how many of you adults were raised in a Christian home? A lot of you. Probably the very first verse in the Bible that you ever memorized was Ephesians 6, 1 which says, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. I mean, your mom and dad had you memorizing that one before they had you memorizing John 3.16, probably. <laughs> so, but that's not our text for today. We're going to focus in on Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Look at it. The scripture says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. In my thinking, this is the single most helpful verse on the subject of parenting in the New Testament. And I think we can say that that verse has five key phrases that ought to guide how we think about parenting and how we go about doing our parenting. The first phrase is bring them up, bring them up. This is from the Greek word ektrephity, and what it means is to nourish up to maturity or to train up. 
the verse is teaching us, and by the way it's constructed, it leads us to understand that children by themselves do not grow up to be what God wants them to be. In fact, the, the Bible teaches children have to be brought up. They have to be trained up. Uh, Proverbs twenty-two fifteen says, Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Proverbs 29, 15 says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. The point is children uh, cannot be left to themselves. They, can't be, they have to be brought up. Now, the goal that the scriptures are talking about, the word ectrephity, what that means is, the goal is to lead our children to love Christ, to obey his word, and then to function as independent adults who think and act biblically. Or to put it simply, our goal as parents is to, deci- is to evangelize our children and then to disciple them so that they become long-term disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. So <clears throat> bring them up. Uh, let me explain it this way. And I'm going to do, um, we're going to start here, we're going to end over there. So let's think that you're, you're, this is when you're at the, the hospital and the child's just been born, got a precious brand new baby, and when you're holding a precious brand new baby, just think, okay, what, would you ha- what do you have in your arms? Well, depending on your circumstances in life, you may say, well, a hope realized, or um, you may say um, a brand new stage of life, or you may say lots of bills. Uh, <laughs> and all those could be true, what I want you to think about is that when you're holding a brand new baby, there's four characteristics of that child I want you to think about. Number one, that precious life, and it is a precious life, that child is a sinner by nature. The scripture teaches us that all of us come into the world and we're just bent towards sin. Nobody has to teach a child how to say no. Nobody has to teach a child how to lie, cheat, or steal. It's just in them. And the reason is, it's in their parents. Kind has produced kind. All right? And so the Bible just teaches that we're all sinners uh, by nature. Second characteristic of that precious child, it won't take very long, usually it's hours or a few days, before you'll start seeing indications this child's a sinner by choice, too. Because they can be well-fed, they're dry, their diaper's been changed, they've been loved on, they're warm and everything, and they'll still scream in anger. And you start seeing that there's a characteristic there that even when they're being well cared for, they're still going to uh, manifest a sinful, uh, sinful being. The third thing I want you to notice is that with you got this young child, the child is totally self-centered. So even though they are being perfectly well cared for, well fed, burp, diapers changed, medical care, all of that being transported, everything's being done for them, they're still very, very self-centered. And that leads me to the fourth one is they're totally dependent upon other people. All right? So now think about that outline, parents. When you have a new child come into your home, you've got a sinner by nature, sinner by choice, who's totally self-centered and dependent upon other people. Now look at me. The goal of parenting is to take an individual with those four characteristics, and as they're in your home and as they're growing, you're going to be evangelizing them teaching them the truths of the scripture, praying that they will repent someday and trust Christ as their savior. And the goal is that by the time we get down here in our culture, somewhere between the ages of 18 and 22, that child has become a serious follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. They love God. They love his ways. 
And because they love God and love his ways, love his word, they will be prepared to leave the home nest and to go out into the world as a responsible adult. Part of being a responsible adult will mean they'll seek to get a job where they can take care of themselves and not just consume their resources on themselves, but because they love God, they're going to love people. They want to give and help other people, but they're prepared for life. That's what a trephity means, to bring them up. Or the way my grandfather used to talk about it, I remember one time when I was talking to him about one of my classmates who had got into difficulty, and my grandfather knew the, the boy's family and background and everything, and I still remember my granddad saying, well, that boy just grew up. He wasn't fetched up. What the old-timers used to call being fetched up is what the scriptures talk about being brought up. Taking somebody with these four characteristics, sinner by nature, sinner by choice, totally self-centered, totally dependent upon others, and by the time they get down here, they're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they love God, they love other people, they're not dependent upon others, they're involved in serving other people. The goal is to lead our children to love Christ, to obey His Word, and function as independent adults. Now, before we leave that, let me speak to all the parents that are here. Parents, is your brand of Christianity attractive? Does the way you practice your faith create in your children a desire to be like you? One of the hardest turnoffs, strongest turnoffs to evangelism are so-called Christians that don't, they talk the talk, but they just don't walk the walk. And there's some people that talk the talk and walk the walk in public, but they're not walking the walk in private. And in my counseling ministry, I've worked with a lot of individuals who've come from a religious background. They tell me I grew up in a Christian home, and they may not use these terms, but what they express is, but my parents' brand of Christianity, I don't want. And they turned away from it. Parents, I would remind you, and I'd say to all of you, that non-believers are typically first attracted to a Christian, then to Christ. And one of the roles of a parent is to live our Christian faith in such a way that we help our children see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and the beauty of His Word. I'd say to those of you that are teenagers, you children, listen kids, the last perfect parent went back to heaven about 2,000 years ago. Since then, there's been no perfect parent. And if you're growing up in a home where you would tend to view your parents as hypocrites or inconsistent, or you see their failures, which it's always easier for us to see failures in other people than our, quicker than ourselves, I would say to you, please do not let your parents' failures detract you from seeing the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word. Your parents may fail you. All of us fail our children at some point. But Jesus Christ will never fail you. And His Word will never fail you. So the goal is bring them up. Now the second phrase I want to give attention to talks about a key strategy. How do you bring them up? How do you do this big, huge change over the period of 18 to 22 years in our culture? 
Well, the key strategy is to bring them up. He said, bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. This is the Greek word paideia. And paideia refers to the upbringing or the training and the instruction of a child primarily by act, by discipline, and by correction. You may want to underline in your notes that, that phrase, primarily by act. Bringing a child up in the discipline of the Lord means training primarily by act. It involves providing boundaries for a child and then penalties for going beyond the boundaries. The goals are character development and equipping the child for life in a world full of boundaries. So one of the men who trained me in biblical counseling used to say that paideia is teaching with some kick in it. So here's what that would illustrate. Uh, We have two children. Our oldest is a son named Jim. And back when he was a child, he was Jimmy then, but, uh, you know, for parents of a first child, you know, every time they do something for the first time, I mean, it's a great victory, you know. And uh, so the first time he started crawling, I mean, we're so excited. We're taking pictures and calling the grandparents and everything. And uh, after Jimmy started crawling, uh, one of the things that had happened that had not happened previously is he was attracted to a rectangle on the wall typically called an outlet. And uh, I remember one time, we were in the living room, and we had been playing with him. We set him down, and he saw an outlet, and he starts going toward it. And I said, Jimmy, no. He turned around, looked at me, looked at the outlet. You know, he starts going toward it. And so I said again, Jimmy, no. Stronger. And he just kept right on going. And he gets up to that outlet and he puts up his hand and unbeknownst to him, I'm out of my chair, I'm right behind him and as that little hand goes up there, my hand comes down and I smack his hand and I say, Jimmy, no. And then I pick him up with some authority and I march him over to another place and set him down. That's paideia. That's training with some kick in it. You see? Just like a little bit later when you have a child that's maybe you know, three, four, five years old, and you've been saying to the child, honey, don't leave your toys in the hallway. Somebody's going to come out of the restroom, not look down, step on them, and it's going to get broken. And you may have made that speech dozens of times, and the child doesn't listen or listens sporadically, but sure enough, there comes a time when somebody comes out of the restroom, doesn't look down, steps on the toy, breaks it, lots of tears, and if it's a typical American child, after they cry a while, they figure out the solution to the problem, Would you buy me another one? Great opportunity for training for parents. Sorry, honey, we told you not to do that. No, we're not going to buy you another one. Lots more tears. Okay. Paideia. All right. And the older a child gets, the parents provide boundaries. I'm using boundaries as the word instead of the word rules. And we teach the child... You've got to live happily within the boundaries that we give you because we're trying to prepare you for more boundaries that are coming. So when we've got a child that's a a preschooler, we're teaching, honey, you got to learn to pick up your things. And we tell you, put them away. You got to do that. If you don't learn to obey daddy and mommy, what are you going to do when you go to kindergarten and first grade? And the teacher tells you to do something. And when we got a child in the third grade, we're saying, honey, when the teacher sends home something for us to sign, you've got to remember to do that. If you don't learn how to do that, 
What are you going to do when you're in the fifth or sixth grade and you, you want to be on a sports team and you got tennis shoes and balls and things and other things you got to bring home? And we're teaching them because the older you get, there's not fewer people putting boundaries on you. There's more. And a child that has not learned to live happily within boundaries that somebody in proper authority has put on them is not prepared for life. That's part of why bringing them up involves discipline. Boundaries and then penalties for going beyond the boundaries. When I, uh, when I talk about that, I think about one of my more memorable counseling cases. Years ago, um, I was working, uh, when I was working at Faith Biblical Counseling Ministries in Lafayette as one of their counselors and trainers, a family came in from the community and brought in a son who had been uh, suspended from school for arguing and fighting, and the school demanded that the, the boy get counseling before he'd be readmitted. And they were acceptable coming for biblical counseling. So as I'm getting to know the family, uh, this is a, a son that's probably the middle of th three kids, if I remember right. He's about 16 and a half years old. And the parents just told me a story about how just most of his life he had just been a rebellious child and just kind of always resisting the, the rules in the home. And uh, in recent years, he'd really become more flagrant with that, creating a lot of heartache. And uh, so when I had met the family down in the waiting room, I knew it was going to be on parent-child counseling, and I knew they were bringing the teenager. When I met him in the waiting room, the boy had a baseball hat on, and he had the bill pulled down so far that I couldn't even see his nose. And in the session, I tried to engage with him, and uh, he'd kind of grunt or nod his head. And, but as we got more and more talking about his problems, and I, parents would say something about him, I'd ask, ask him, is that true, and so forth, I noticed that as I'm doing that, he keeps putting his head down and hitting his thumb on the bill of his cap, and slowly but surely the bill on that cap starts coming up. So I can see his nose, and finally I get to the point where I can see his eyes. And uh, we get up to where we're talking about what has recent happened in recent weeks, and particularly the incident at the school and everything. And I see this kid just squirming in his seat. And you can just see the fire building. And we're talking about some of his most recent things he'd done. And all of a sudden, he just explodes. And he turns to his parents, and he criticizes them. And he says, in part, well, I'm 16 and a half years old, and I've checked it out. When I'm 18, I can leave home, and you can't stop me. And I'm going to move to Denver, and I'm going to live with Billy's uh, dad and mom or uh, uncle, and the uncle's going to get me a job, and I'm going to spend the money any way I want. I'm going to buy a car. I'll go anywhere I want. You're not going to tell me what to do. And he just erupts and just rips on his parents. And uh, when he gets done with his little speech, um, there's this unsettled quiet for just a moment, and God had to have helped me. Because the first words out of my mouth was, I, I'll call him Jack. I said, Jack, if I were king, I'd fix it so you could start doing that next week. He looked at me kind of surprised because he hadn't expected me to say that. In fact, the parents looked at me kind of surprised. They didn't. <laughs> and I said to him, you said, you know, uh, from all I'm hearing, Jack, I think probably a good thing for you to get a job. That'd probably be good for you. And I can understand your desire wanting to get a car. I mean, I remember how excited it was when I got my first car. And Denver's a great place to be. I mean, I've been there several times. I like Denver a lot. 
and it can be a nice place to live. And uh, it's always kind of exciting when you move away from home for the first time. And I said, uh, I think, though, Jack, if you did everything you just said about six weeks or six months after you do it, it's not going to be working out the way you think it's going to. I said, for example, when you get that first job, you know what's going to happen? They're going to tell you what time to show up for work. And they're going to tell you when you can take a break. And they're going to tell you when the break's over. And they're going to tell you how to dress. And they're going to tell you when they go home. And you know what else? They're going to tell you how much they're going to pay you. They won't even ask. They're just going to tell you. And when you get that first paycheck, man, you're so excited because you know how much you're getting paid per hour. And you've been doing the math. And you've been getting all the overtime you can. And you're thinking about how much money you have so you can get that car as quick as possible. And when you slid open that first uh, paycheck, you're going to be in for a surprise. Because the math is not working out the way you thought it was going to. Because while you're thinking about getting started in life, Uncle Sam's thinking about you retiring. <laughs> and without even asking, he's going to take 7.65% of your gross just right off the top. And then there's going to be state taxes, federal taxes, maybe local taxes. And then when you get that car, state of Colorado is going to tell you how much you're going to pay for sales tax. And then they're going to tell you which side of the road you can drive on. And then they're going to tell you how fast you can drive in different places. And they'll tell you how much you're going to pay if you don't drive as fast as they do. And I predict, Jack, six weeks, six months after you do everything you just said, you're going to look back at living with dad and mom and think it was pretty easy. Parents, God says the way you get a child ready for life, in part, is through paideia. You've got to have some rules. You've got to have some boundaries. And there needs to be penalties for those. Because a child who has not learned to live happily within boundaries that somebody else has put on them is ill-equipped for life. You know, one of the things that most uh, teenagers uh, think about, it seems like, is... Uh, have you heard this one? I can't wait till I graduate from high school and move away from home because then I will be... What's the next word? Free. Oh, no. The older you get, the more people there are that put boundaries on you. Let me just show you how bad it is. Teenagers, you listening right now? You can be a... It's probably the problem's up here. I probably kicked this. Right here. Here it is. I'm sorry. Maybe. Let's thank God. Let's get a nice round of applause for Jason there. <laughs> All right. I was talking about the tribulation or something, wasn't I? <laughs> I was trying to make the point that the older you get, the more people are that put boundaries on you. And I was trying to make the point, here's how bad it is. You can be a godly Christian who loves Jesus loves the word, you can be faithful to a good church, and they'll tell you what time to show up. And in just a little bit, we're going to tell you when to stand. We'll tell you when you can sit down. And in just a little bit, we'll tell you when you can leave. 
Life is filled with people putting boundaries on us. If you don't learn to live happily within boundaries, you're not ready for life. Kids, that's why you need to learn to live happily with the rules mom and dad have. Even if some of them appear to be unreasonable to you. Because guess what? All of life is filled with people putting boundaries on you that you wish were a little bit different. A, few, uh, a while back, I got to speak at our uh, church where Cindy and I have been longtime members, College Park Church in Indianapolis. And they asked me to speak on, uh, on uh, this passage. And I told this same story that I just told you. And afterwards, a guy comes up to me and says, Hey, Randy, I really identified with that story you told about that teenager that exploded in, in the counseling session. But he says, I was even more stupid than that guy was. And I said, oh, really? How's that? And he said, oh, he said, I, I gave my parents so much grief during high school. And they said, you know, they, I just, they pulled their hair out trying to raise me. And he said, uh, <clears throat> he said, I couldn't wait to get away from home <clears throat> and be free. And he says, uh, guess what I did the day after I graduated from high school? I said, what's that? He said, I joined the military. <laughs> <clears throat> I said, what branch? He said, Marines. He said, I told you I was stupid. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting. God uses this kind of training with his children. In Hebrews 12, 5 to 11, nine times in seven verses, God uses the word discipline to talk about how he deals with us. So, if the perfect Heavenly Father does this with His children, with us, then we can understand that we're being like Him when we do this in a loving way with our children. Well, there's another key strategy that this passage talks about. The Scripture says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, the word instruction is the, the Greek word nuthesia, this is uh, the word from which we used to, we used to talk about nuthetic counseling. This is the, the word that was used to describe biblical counseling years, years ago. And this refers to the training and the instruction of a child primarily by word. Where paideia is training of a child primarily by act, nuthesia is training primarily by word. And this word has three primary elements to this kind of instruction. To bring a child up in the instruction of the Lord means that you discern thinking and behavior that God wants to change. Then you use God's word to change the thinking and behavior. And you do that for the child's benefit and for the glory of God. So parents, uh, think about this. You know, children are very bright. You can teach a two-year-old a lot of things. Kids, kids are amazingly bright. But here's a phrase I want you to remember. Just add 10. While you can teach a 2-year-old a lot, you can teach a 12-year-old a lot more. And it's not like we're to wait until the child's 12. I mean, this is to be a growing process. But we're to be teaching children. And as we, uh, the, the point is we discern thinking and behavior. Notice it's not just the behavior, it's the thinking. And then we use God's Word to confront the wrong thinking, the wrong behavior. And we're always doing it for the child's benefit and for the glory of God. That's the motivation. 
So um, this means that as you have to discipline or as you have to deal with, with matters, that you, uh, that you confront the child, and I want to encourage you to use the Scriptures. It doesn't mean every time you've got to make them sit down and you open your Bible and so forth, but you want to be teaching them God's ways, teaching them to think biblically and help them understand as they become a, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, as they repent and become a Christ follower, that this is the way God wants you to think, this is the way He wants you to, to behave, this is what He wants your motives to be, and so forth. Now, the, the, the goals for doing this, the goals are character development and equipping the child to think and act biblically on his own. That is to develop spiritual convictions. This is important because the older a child gets, the less the parents can control the child's actions and the less you can control the people who are influencing your child. So what I want to encourage you to consider is this. When you're dealing with a child and you're wanting to instruct them in God's ways, you want to use your Bible, but even when you are disciplining, when there's penalties for going beyond the boundaries, you want them to understand the, 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 the spiritual dynamics and help them understand the goal. I'm trying to get you ready for life, and so you want to use the Bible. One of the things that um, has encouraged Cindy and me at a time in our life years ago when we were raising our children and one of them was giving us a real run for our money in some areas and we were really struggling and I sought counsel from one of my mentors and uh, we talked about how we were dealing with, with our child that in this particular case I'm thinking about was our daughter Becky and I remember the counselor saying to me asking in detail how we dealt with her on something and his question was well Randy was your Bible open and used? Was her Bible opened and used? Well, you're a biblical counselor. Why not? And that's what I learned a valuable lesson. And from that time on, when we had significant issues to deal with, I remember one time particularly I said to my son, all right, listen, go upstairs, get your Bible, get your notepad, meet me at the kitchen table in five minutes. Go. And while he was gone, I went and got my Bible, got my notepad, and we met at the kitchen table and we took the sort of the spirit out of the sheath <laughs> and tried to use it to go after the thinking, the inner man, that later leads to the outer man issues. Now, a lot of people say, well, you know, man, they're just, the Bible's such a big book. I don't know what to teach my kids. And I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I don't have a model and, and so forth. So that's why in your notes I've listed... Ten scriptural convictions that children need to be taught. So here, here's, what I want you, here's what I want to do. I want you, those of you that are parents, I want you to consider we're down here at this part in the process and you've got a child somewhere between the ages of 18 and 22 and the child's you know, about ready to leave home and let's pretend that you're standing on the front porch, you're waving to them as they drive off and maybe they're going off to college or maybe you're dropping them off at the recruiting post where they're leaving for the military or they're moving across the country for a job or something. But in effect, the child is leaving the home nest. And I want you to consider what would be in your heart if as you're waving goodbye, you were convinced that these 10 were in your child's heart and that they embraced them, all right? So think about that. And in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to respond 
What do you think would be in your heart as a parent if you're waving goodbye, but you thought your child believed these? So here are the 10 scriptural convictions that I think children need to be taught. The Bible is the inspired word of God and the final authority for my life. My purpose in life is to seek God with my whole heart and to build my goals around his priorities. My body is the living temple of God and must not be defiled by the lust of the flesh. My church must teach the foundational truths of Scripture and reinforce my basic convictions. My children and grandchildren belong to God, and it is my responsibility to teach them scriptural principles, godly character, and basic convictions. My activities must never weaken the scriptural convictions of another Christian. Marriage is a covenant relationship between a man and a woman, and my marriage will be a lifelong commitment to God and to my marriage partner. My money is a trust from God and must be earned and managed according to scriptural principles. And my words must be in harmony with scripture, especially when reproving and restoring a Christian brother. And my affections must be set on things above, not on things of the earth. Oh, so, okay, so now talk to me, a few of you. If you're waving goodbye to a child and you're convinced that these were in their heart, what would be in your mind? What would be in your heart at that point? Let me hear from three or four of you. Raise your hand so I can recognize you. Reassurance. All right, reassurance. Somebody else. Joy. Joy. Confidence. Confidence. Somebody else? Y'all are not used to talking to the preacher during the service, are you? <laughs> Say it again. Peace. Peace, yeah. You notice how positive all those are? Yeah. Now, here's the point. There's only 10. <laughs> There's only 10. You can do this. There's only 10. And grandparents, here's where you can have a profound influence. Let me give you a couple of ideas on how to do it. I'd suggest some of you families have a you parents have a discussion, and grandparents a discussion, you know, this afternoon, say, okay, let's think about doing that, and let's just take one of those, and we're going to say, this is our theme for the next month. You know, we're halfway through September now, and you say, we're study up on this, and beginning in October, around our house, what we're going to be talking about, the Bibles, the inspired Word of God, and the final authority for my life. And maybe we'll memorize 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 together. And we're going to be looking for opportunities to demonstrate that the Bible is our final authority. And then uh, in November, we'll go on to number point B. My purpose in life is to seek God with my whole heart and build my goals around his priorities. We'll memorize one of those verses. We're going to be talking about it all the time. And then the next month, we'll go on to the third one. I mean, think, folks, just think about this. Let's say you've got a, a child that's 12 years old in your house. By the way, if you've got a 12-year-old, I mean, you better be getting with it. You're two-thirds done. The clock is ticking. But think, if you just had a 12-year-old and you started doing this this week or next month, by the time the child leaves your home, they would have been through this list of 10 multiple times. What a heritage. What a wonderful heritage. Now, some of you think, I couldn't talk about that for a month. I mean, after a couple weeks, I'd be repeating myself. Okay. Why don't you talk about number one for... Um, October 1 to 15. And October 16 through the end of the month, talk about point B. In November 1 to 15, talk about point C. 
My point is, when I asked you what would be in your heart, every one of you that responded, your answers were positive, and those that you didn't respond, my guess is your answers would have been similar if you had responded. You can do this. Children, I'd say to you, if you want 10 convictions that will serve you well all your days, these are 10 that I encourage you to embrace and make them your own. Here's a... a resource that can help you. This book is called Sticky Situations, 365 Devotions for Kids and Their Parents. Uh, This book was not available when we were raising children, which it had been. It would have been a help to us. And if you open up the book to any day, there's uh, two or three paragraphs that just describe a sticky situation that a child might find themselves in. Then there's two or three questions to help you think through that situation. And then at the bottom, it'll list some scriptures that are helpful in dealing with that kind of situation. This book is designed to help children think Christianly about the issues of life and could be of great help uh, to many of you. I think this book is particularly beneficial for junior high age and below. Well, let's move on. The verse we're talking about in our study of the scriptures this morning is Ephesians 6, 4, which says, fathers do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. The next part of our outline deals with that phrase, fathers. The Bible teaches that the children are primarily dad's responsibility. The children are primarily dad's responsibility. The Bible teaches that the the headship of the husband is a key Bible doctrine. For example, in Ephesians 5.23, the Bible says, the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Further, the Bible teaches um, that God holds fathers primarily responsible for what happens with the children. We see an illustration of that in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, uh, that Scripture says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Now, Eli was an Old Testament, uh, what we would call Christian worker or a minister. And uh, you think about anybody who's in vocational Christian ministry, which is the way I would kind of describe him. And it says his sons were worthless men. That is a sad statement. But then almost to explain that, It says, they did not know the Lord. What a sad thing for a parent to be teaching other people, but your own kids don't get the truth, don't get the gospel. Well, later, the next chapter, we read these verses. The Lord said to Samuel, and Samuel at this point is like an intern serving under Eli. And the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day, I will carry out against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And then in verse 13, for I have told him that I'm about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. He failed in confronting sin even in his own house and calling his sons to repentance and to pursue God. So fathers are very, very important. Men, here's a concept that was helpful to me years ago. Uh, Cindy and I, in our first church we attended after we got married, uh, the church had a 
annual family month where the teaching was all about husband-wife relationships and parent-child relationships. And uh, before we ever had children, one of the speakers we heard talked about, about the father's role, and he used an illustration that has just really stuck with me. And he said that dads ought to view themselves as the CEO of their family. And then you view others as your assistants, like the mother, grandparents, teachers, pastors, and coach, and so forth. So the application of that was, for me, that I was to view myself as the president and CEO, chief executive officer of Patton Incorporated. And what we're doing at Patton Inc. is that we are trying to produce champions for Christ. That's the phrase that Cindy and I use. As we entered into being parents, our prayer was, God, help us to raise children that are champions for you. And, uh, but, you know, being a parent and, you know, I'm working a full-time job and all the other obligations, I mean, I knew it was a big job. And the man who taught it, taught this principle, said, well, you know, a CEO can't run a company by himself. I mean, you've got to have some help. And what you really need, to, if you're going to run a company, is you need a really good executive VP. And uh, so, in the good grace of God, when I had uh, dated Cindy and persuaded her to, to marry me, uh, little did I know what wonderful skills she had as a mother. And she turned out to be a fantastic executive VP at Patton, Inc. And uh, I would just say to you, just from a purely human point of view, we've had wonderful things happen with our kids. And I would say just from a purely human point of view, those positive things are due more to the influence of my wife than due to me. Which just goes to show you what a great job I did when I hired her as the executive VP. <laughs> but we realized, hey, being a parent in our culture, man, it's a challenge. You need help. We need more than a president. We need more than an executive VP. And we thought... Our own lives, we both had been influenced by our grandparents. So what we did, just as young couples, expecting our first child, we went and had sit-down meetings with each of our parents and said, you're going to be grandparents here pretty soon. Here's our goal for our kids. We want to ask you to help us achieve that goal. We invite you to speak into their lives. We invite you to come alongside. We invite you to be a part of the team. And here's where we're headed. But if you're going to be a part of the team, you've got to be headed the same way we're headed. You can't be working against us. But my parents lived seven hours away. Cindy's parents lived across the country in California. We need help closer. So we looked in our congregation, and we looked at people that had kids that were older, like in their teen years, their adolescent years, and people that we thought were doing a good job with their kids. And I still remember we had them over to our house for a meal, and we interviewed them, and we interviewed their kids about what makes your home a great place to be and what do you like about your parents? What do you wish your parents would do different? And we leaned on, and then we invited privately, we invited those parents to speak into the lives of our children. So you don't have to, if we see my kids messing up at the church, you don't have to come ask me if you can talk to them. Go talk to them lovingly, but come alongside. Because my job as the president of Patton Inc., your job, dads, as the leader of your home, is not to do everything. You can't. But you are responsible to build the team and get as many people surrounding your children, pointing them in the same direction as you are. By the way, that's one of the huge benefits of being a part of a church like this. And one reason why, especially for those of you that are new, I would encourage you to embrace this church, to become a functioning part of it, 
and so that your children develop friendships here, so that they have role models. It's so interesting for me now to talk to my children <clears throat> who were born and raised. My son was born four days after I became a pastor. We did our part to contribute to church growth. And uh, <clears throat> when we talk to our kids about what they remember about our church, they don't talk about kids their age. They talk about the adults they knew that influenced them. And that's why those of you that are Sunday school teachers and youth leaders, you're in such a strategic position to influence the next generation for Christ. To give them a loving role model, somebody that cares about them, that's not a blood relative. I would encourage you, seize those opportunity. And for those of you that are uh, grandparents, to seek to do that the same. Well, one of the primary principles of parenting, excuse me, of fathering, is to be there. And where I see fathers struggling, and where I want to exhort the fathers here today, is to be there physically, to be there mentally, and to be there emotionally. Being there physically means that you're around the kids. You choose to be around them. And it doesn't mean that your body's just on the property. But it means that you choose to engage with the children. You are with them. But being there physically also means that you're there mentally. I've learned to ask in counseling uh, <clears throat> fathers to record when people come for parent-child counseling. One of the things I sometimes do is ask the fathers to record how much time they spent with each child individually during a week and then how much time they spent with each of the kids or as a group. And what I found is that fathers tend to grossly overestimate how much time they actually spend with their children. And fathers, I'd encourage you to seriously evaluate that, maybe even record it for a week or two. But be there mentally. That is, get in the, the game. So when I have a, a father who's coming for parent-child issues, and he's telling me he was there, and he, yeah, I was home with my nine-year-old, and I say, okay, what were you doing? What was he doing? And well, he's playing a game, and what were you doing? Checking my phone. Checking my emails. Well, you're not, you're there physically, but you're not there mentally. But then you need to be there emotionally. One of the things that has been interesting to me is I've done thousands of, uh, conducted thousands of counseling sessions, is that as I get to know people and I ask them to give me your life history, how many times I notice people tell me about their life history and how many people tell me I grew up in a home where things were not the best and, you know, my mother was a hardworking woman and she, Maybe she's a great cook, and I knew she loved me. My dad was a hardworking man. And then they'll say something like this. But I never remember my dad telling me he's proud of me. I never remember my dad telling me he loves me. And even if I'm talking to people in their 40s and 50s and even older, inevitably there's a catch in their voice as they report that sad news. Dads, I just want to exhort you to love your kids and tell them you love them, to embrace them, and to express your pride for whatever they do that's right and good and, and honorable. A primary principle of fathering is to be there physically, mentally, and emotionally. Did you realize that there's 24 million children in the United States that live in a fatherless home? 40% of the students in grades 1 to 12 come from homes with no biological father in them. 71% of teenage pregnant mothers have no father in the home. 70% of high school dropouts have no father present. 
And a child is four times more likely to live in a home, to live in poverty if there's no dad in the home. Dads, you're really important. Now, mothers are to be involved. Proverbs chapter 1, 8 and 9 says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Here's something I want you to see, and I want particularly the single mothers here to catch this. While fathers have the greatest responsibility for the children, mothers frequently have the greatest influence. And that means that if you find yourself as a single mother, that you can have profound influence on your children. There are multiple significant Bible characters that were raised in single-parent homes. And if God could turn out his kind of product back when the New Testament era and the Old Testament, he can do the same today. It's interesting that when men are dying in combat, they don't cry for their fathers. They call out for their mothers. And single moms, you have the greatest influence oftentimes. Well, let's move on. Let's talk about the tendency to avoid. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline, the instruction of the Lord. When the Bible says, do not provoke your children to anger, this does not mean that you never oppose, that you never upset, oppose, anger, or displease a child. If that's what it meant, we're all out of business. Um, what it does mean is that parents should avoid inciting the child to a wrathful kind of living. The warning, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. The warning is not about an incident of anger, but about a lifestyle of anger. In other words, what God is saying to us, he wants us to avoid raising a child like the person spoken of repeatedly in the book of Proverbs. For example, Proverbs 19, verse 19 says, A man of great anger will bear the penalty, for if you rescue him, you'll just have to do it again. And God is saying to us, don't raise a child who's a man of great anger. Or Proverbs 22, 24 says, Do not associate with a man given to anger, or go with a hot-tempered man. And I would say to all the dads raising daughters who are unmarried, do whatever you have to do, pay them, bribe them, do whatever you have to do, get them to memorize this verse and to obey it. Do not associate with a man given to anger. Or go with a hot-tempered man. The next verse says, lest you learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. Um, the Bible says, don't raise a man given to anger. Or Proverbs 25, 28 says, like a city that's broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. <clears throat> don't raise a child like that. Well, the Bible speaks primarily of two kinds of anger. And I'd like you to, to see this. Turn with me to, we're in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Just back up a little bit to Ephesians 4, 31. For a lot of you, it's just across the page or one page back. In Ephesians 4, 31, there are six behaviors that God commands us to get rid of. And the verse says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. I want you to notice what is number two and number three in the list. 
He says, first of all, let all bitterness, that's number one, and then all wrath. Uh, this is the Greek word thumos. Say that with me, would you? Thumos. <clears throat> okay, here's how you can remember it. God says, put all this away from you. Picture a volcano in your mind, then picture the volcano exploding while you say the word. Thumos. That's exactly what it means. Thumos is an explosive outburst of rage where the energy generated by the anger is expressed outward toward people or toward things. And the scriptures are saying to us, do not raise a child whose default response to not getting what they want or life not going the way they want is thumos. All right? But notice the next word in the list. He says, let all bitterness and wrath, and then he says, let all anger be put away from you. This is the Greek word orge, and orge refers to what could be called the settled burn. And uh, <clears throat> this is where the energy is generated by the anger. God has designed us in such a way that whenever we get angry, energy is generated. And thumos, the energy goes this way. With orge, the energy goes this way. It goes inside. And so a person who is given to orge will, will stomp around and the anger's turned inside and they're hard to live with and they're edgy. And we have a lot of expressions. We talk about people that, that, that have an attitude or they're copping an attitude. <clears throat> and uh, we've got, uh, they get up on the wrong side of the bed. Or they got a chip on their shoulder. Those are all expressions talking about orge, or excuse me, about orge. So here's a, here's a way to remember that. You remember thumos, the explosion. Here's how to remember orge. Say the word, thinking about how the energy's turned inside with just some expression. Orge. That's what it is. And when God says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, he's not talking about it's an in incident of anger. There's going to be incident along the way. And what we're not going to tolerate is thumos at our house, and neither are we going to tolerate orge. Here's the interesting thing. I've noticed that most Christian families realize thumos is wrong. They may not do much about it, but they know it's wrong. I've noticed that many Christian families view orge as the terrible twos, or the adolescent years, or the terrible teens, and they don't think about it either. And Ephesians 4.31 is clear. Let all bitterness, all wrath, all anger, all slander, all malice be put away from you. They all have to be dealt with. And the goal is that we do not produce a child who goes out into the world whose default response to not get in their way is either blow up or become hard to live with because of war gay. Well, I trust that through this you've seen the beauty of God's Word and how helpful it can be. Let me just summarize real quickly with this, if I could, another moment. Here's how I would teach this in a counseling room, how I do teach it. The goal of parenting is to bring a child up. In our culture, it takes about 18 to 22 years. To bring a child up God's way, you have to provide discipline. You notice the discipline's at an all-time high in the early years because you can teach a young child a lot about how to handle life when they're very, very young. But it's not just discipline. We have to provide the instruction of the Lord. And you can teach a 2-year-old a lot. You can teach a 12-year-old a lot more. 
I will tell you the hardest counseling that I'm called to do are when parents bring me a child that they want me to teach that they have not disciplined. That's hard. Here's a final way of thinking about this. The older a child gets, there's decreasing parental responsibility. If you're at somebody's house and your four-year-old's running around and breaks a vase, mom and dad, you're responsible. If you're at somebody's house and your 14-year-old breaks a vase, at our house, you're responsible. Okay? The older a child gets, there's increasing child's responsibility. So children, wherever you are in the process, your responsibility is increasing as we go forward. Well, those are some thoughts. Here's some books that are in your bookstore that can help you. There's wonderful, I saw your bookstore. There's wonderful resources there. I hope you'll go by and get some of these that can be of great help to you. There's hope and help for parents.